Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So it's World Cup time. I mean, I'm sorry for the stupid analogy, but really in trying to explain the levels of intention and the amount of discussion around South Africa's application at the International Court of Justice against Israel under the Genocide Convention concerning the ongoing attacks against Palestinians in Gaza, this really is the big time for international lawyers. Even my student daughter has actually noticed for once. Ah, well, we should say exactly what's going on. So Stephopedia this bit. Since October 7, of course, we've seen an Israeli crackdown on what they say is the Hamas leadership in the Gaza Strip, one the occupied territories of Israel. The number of deaths are now at over 20,000. There have been allegations and warnings from the UN that there are possibly war crimes or crimes against humanity might be happening there or that the some of the actions that Israel is taking amounts to war crimes of crimes against humanity, also warnings of possible genocide from some experts. Uh, South Africa filed uh, the case at the end of December with the International Court of Justice, alleging that Israel is breaking its obligations under the UN Treaty to prevent and punish genocide, saying a couple of things. It says that Israel is committing genocide. It says that Israel is not preventing genocide. And it says that Israel has failed to prevent or punish Uh, incitement to genocide by its officials, and it has asked for provisional measures. In my Reuters copy, I explained that it's kind of restraining orders on parties while the case goes forward to be listened to on the merits, which is something that could take several years. So what we'll see at the end of the week that we're recording are the provisional measures hearings. And based on what we could expect from the past, the only thing that we can really look at is the ruling in Bosnia versus Serbia, which is the first time that the court ruled that genocide had occurred. That's the kind of jurisprudence from the court that we can look towards. I'm sure we'll uh, return to that a little bit later in the podcast, but we decided to try and cover a number of different uh, aspects here. We approached three different people to help guide us through. First one is South African lawyer, Kajol Ramjathan Keo, and she helps to explain South Africa's motivations. And we asked Maha Abdallah, a Palestinian genocide scholar, to run through the details of South Africa's application to the court. And Juliet McIntyre, friend of the podcast and self-described procedure goblin of the International Court of Justice, to explain what we might expect as outcomes. So let's kick off with Karjal, who is the head of the Africa section of the International Commission of Jurists. And we started by asking what connection South Africa feels to the situation in Palestine. There is a deep resonance of what the Palestinian people are facing uh, in terms of this occupation by Israel to what South Africa encountered under apartheid. So I think there is the feeling that they are experiencing the exact same apartheid situation and that they require the kind of support that South Africa had from the international community during those early dark days of apartheid. And Palestine has always been a very special cause for the ANC government and for South Africa. We also see that South Africa's got a, a judge elected to the uh, International Court of Justice, Dire Tlade, who was very active also behind the scenes at the International Criminal Court. I'm wondering what role South Africa sees itself as playing in this kind of world of justice and accountability. It's unclear exactly how South Africa is setting themselves up. They've had quite a checkered history 
on accountability and international justice in the last 10 years. So Professor Dira Kladi has been appointed to the ICJ. He, of course, will not be sitting in this case and doesn't undertake that position till February. So he, he misses this case, but there has been another judge appointed. Um, it's former Deputy Judge President Dekang Moseneke, who will join the panel of 15 judges who will hear this case. He is retired from the Constitutional Court and has been a formidable judge at the Constitutional Court. So it will be interesting to have him hearing this case uh, and in particular engaging with the, the South African legal team, uh, who he will know only very, very well. Yesterday we got the name of the Israeli ad hoc judge that was appointed. And today uh, somebody uh, dug out an article with him where he basically says uh, that he doesn't think that uh, Israel is committing human rights violations of international humanitarian law in the Gaza Strip. And I was surprised to find an ad hoc judge who had already said so much about a case that he might be hearing. So I was wondering if the South African ad hoc judge had also been questioned about what is happening in Gaza and if he said anything that you know. I have not seen any comments or statements being issued by Judge Mosineke, the South African judge. The judge from Israel has made very strong statements. So it's disappointing that he will sit on this panel, even though he's made his views publicly known. The global nature of politics is seen in the way that the court decides cases. It was very evident in the Ukraine versus Russia case, where Russian and Chinese judges handed down the dissenting views in, in that case. So global politics influences the way that the court works. This is one of the challenges facing the world court. In terms of what South Africa is asking for, we understand that this stage is just about provisional measures or emergency measures to try and stop what's going on. We understand they are asking for a, a ceasefire, but they're also asking for quite specific things in terms of humanitarian aid to stop any starvation going on. You know, what's the minimum that South Africa's asking the, the court to do? What does it really expect the court to, to manage at this stage? At the minimum, they would be seeking a ceasefire, but South Africa would also be hoping that this case could create the kind of momentum needed for a permanent ceasefire, and also that this case could lead potentially to the prosecution of individuals before the ICC. Similar to the case filed by Ukraine before the ICJ, which also dealt with the Genocide Convention, there's no real prospect for the court to intervene in the attack or to resolve the dispute by the parties. The request for emergency measures is a first step in a case that could take several years to complete. Provisional measures are meant to be a kind of restraining order to prevent this particular dispute from getting worse while the court looks at the full case. Interestingly, you say this is a two-way political pressure. It's pressure on Israel if the court decides to grant provisional measures and to say that there's a prima facie case to maybe not so much pressure Israel, but also to politically influence other countries that are now supporting Israel. But you also say it, it puts pressure on the ICC to look into these specific kind of crimes and to actually prosecute somebody. So it's, it goes two ways, not only to Israel, but also to the, the other court investigating this. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's already been 
several countries who are trying to look at ways for the ICC to open investigations and to commence prosecutions. South Africa is, is one of these countries that is pro-prosecution, but cases before the ICC move very slowly and trying to get an individual before the ICC, that might not happen for 10 years, 20 years, it may never happen. So this particular application is a way to try and start to ventilate the issues and to get the court to, to make findings on what is happening currently and potentially then for the ICC and maybe even domestic courts to use those findings to try and get prosecutions going at the ICC or at the domestic level based on universal jurisdiction. So let's move on after this to South Africa's application itself. Uh, Maha Abdullah is studying genocide against the Palestinian people. She's based at Antwerp University. And of course, the actual genocide allegations, as we've already explained, won't be decided this week. But they do form the basis for the arguments about why provisional measures might be needed. So we asked her to help run through for us. What are the top points in South Africa's application? I mean, there's plenty. It's an 84-page application, and it's a well-constructed application and arguments. I think the foremost element that uh, is important to highlight is that the application, besides seeking the court to investigate uh, acts of genocide by Israel against Palestinians in Gaza, is also a kind of an urgent appeal to the court to order Israel to immediately cease its attacks and to urgently provide fullest protection possible to Palestinians in the Gaza Strip who have been subjected to genocidal acts for 90 days today. And this is also the first point of the provisional measures that uh, South Africa requests the court to indicate uh, as a matter of extreme urgency and for the state of Israel to immediately suspend the military operations. So that would be a really big step by the International Court of Justice. Maybe we'll talk right at the end when we've heard from everybody's stuff. But we did also actually see that in a case brought by Ukraine against Russia, didn't we, Steph? Absolutely. The court did order Russia to suspend its military action. It was the first time that I saw the court take that kind of uh, decision, but it was also a slightly different uh, premise for invoking the Genocide Convention because the whole Ukraine-Russia case was that Ukraine says that Russia uh, falsely invoked genocide as a pretext for the invasion and therefore kind of stopping the invasion because you shouldn't be able to use it as a pretext for genocide is kind of a different basis than having a military action that in itself might have parts that are legitimate because you are, of course, allowed to take action against somebody who's committing crimes against you. Uh, The question is, how proportional is it in, in the response to that you should keep to international humanitarian law. And that's a kind of a different situation than we were in with Ukraine versus Russia. So while the court could order that, and South Africa specifically asks for it, I wonder if we will see that in this case. Maha also pointed out some other aspects of uh, what she thought was important in the South African application. Uh, To start with, how South Africa places the current events in Gaza in the broader context. At the very outset of the analysis provided by South Africa in its application, South Africa acknowledges that the genocidal acts and omissions by Israel 
are inevitably form part of a continuum, as with other regrettable processes of genocide that have taken place uh, in the world. And by that, South Africa means that South Africa has placed Israel's genocidal acts in the broader context of Israel's apartheid and military occupation for the past 75 years against the Palestinian people, which also include a 16-year-long siege and blockade and closure imposed on the Gaza Strip at land, air, and sea, with serious and ongoing violations of international law amounting to war crimes and crimes against humanity. Maha and, and others that we've talked to stress that this context is really important. It plays what is happening against the backdrop of the Palestinian struggle for self-determination since the establishment of Israel in 1948, what the Palestinians called the Nakba, the disaster. And she also says that the application highlights the siege of Gaza and the prevention of UN observers from visiting and also highlights the many killings that are reported of journalists. There are other key elements in the analysis when it comes to the genocidal acts perpetrated by Israel that South Africa highlights and focuses on with, with regards to the extensive killing of Palestinians in large numbers by missiles and bombardments, but also to acts uh, inflicting serious bodily uh, harm and severe mental harm and trauma as well caused by the extreme levels of, of relentless bombardments and their consequences on an already besieged and refugee population prior to this aggression and especially on children. And we haven't finished yet. Maha also wanted to highlight this. There's also the elements of Israel's dehumanization of Palestinians, both in rhetoric and in conduct, as seen throughout this aggression in the cruel, inhumane and degrading treatment of Palestinians, including children, by arresting them in mass, blindfolding and forcing them to undress, to being driven in trucks to unknown locations, to being subjected to beatings and torture. And Maha also says that the application focuses on the mass transfer of people which are alleged to be genocidal in character and the deprivation of food and water, sanitation and hygiene, habitation, health care, and also the environmental catastrophe that the bombardments have caused. And if that's not enough, she also points to this. I think something else that the application looks at that I haven't seen very much being discussed or be prominent in the discussions and deliberations about whether this is a genocide or not is the various uh, actions by Israel impacting Palestinian women and children, especially mothers, pregnant women, women who have recently given birth and lactating mothers, newborns, premature births, through the prism of the Genocide Convention, particularly the act of imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group in accordance to Article 2 of the Convention. We also asked her about the long list of public statements by Israeli officials that the South Africans have included to support their claims about genocidal intent. That's a really crucial bit of the Genocide Convention. Israel's acts in its current aggression against Gaza and against the people therein must be committed within the requisite specific intent to destroy Palestinians in Gaza as part of the broader Palestinian group. So proving genocidal intent is often hard when we're talking about genocidal processes and events. 
However, in this particular case, we have had numerous statements since the 7th of October by Israeli state representatives, including the president, including the prime minister, including the minister of defense, including the minister of for national security, as well as high-ranking uh, Israeli army officials, advisors, and spokespersons, most of whom assume the highest of the responsibility in the command chain, together with the conduct of the Israeli military, all of these evidence, the unfolding and continuing genocide in Gaza that we're witnessing. And it is important to note as well here that these statements and conduct have been already recognized as genocidal in both intent and character by various United Nations bodies and mechanisms, including the UN Special Procedures and the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. We know um, that Israel doesn't really rate very highly what the UN experts have to say about it. But I've also seen a critique that maybe some of these statements were a bit cherry picked in the sense that I think you can look almost anywhere in the Israeli media and you can see an awful lot of hate speech at the moment maybe not surprising considering some of the context. So it's coming from all levels of society and not necessarily specifically from the individuals who you would have to tie in the end to a state policy of genocidal intent. I think we're seeing these genocidal statements and statements of dehumanization, of inflicting large-scale destruction, annihilation, turning Gaza into ruins, vilifying Palestinians, holding them all responsible for all acts and violations. Uh, we're seeing those being reflected on the wider Israeli society, whether with parliamentarians or whether on the streets or on the roads with banners asking or demanding that the government uh, carries out a second Nakba, for example, against the Palestinians and leaving zero Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. This is not surprising and this is not new. And what we're seeing now is an escalation in how they are uh, being openly and confidently being used by high-ranking officials, by those who have the authority to issue orders, by those who have the authority to instruct policies and acts. And this is why the emphasis on those uh, specific representatives or spokespersons or authoritative uh, personnel that I have mentioned, because they have the, the authority to instruct and to carry out the acts that we are seeing that are genocidal in character and in intention. We see a lot of comments from non-legal scholars and some even surprisingly from legal scholars where they question if this could be a genocide because we are not seeing things that people expect to see with the genocide, namely mass executions and people being put on lorries and trains to be taken away somewhere. How would you as a genocide scholar respond to that argument that this may not be genocide? I mean, there's a lot to say about this. I would start with for genocide to be genocide or to be proven as genocide, it's not only about the mass killings and the killing of a group, part of it or all of it. The threshold of killing is not about one person or a thousand or 50,000 persons. As long as there is an intent, a clear intent to destroy and to inflict destruction of the group, whether in whole or in part through the acts that we have mentioned earlier, then it amounts to genocide. 
I mean, we could continue deliberating until the end of day about whether this is a genocide or not. But the facts on the ground and the numbers speaks for themselves. At the moment, we're talking about more than 22,000 Palestinians who have been killed, verified killed. We're talking about thousands, thousands of Palestinians who remain under rubble, unidentified, likely dead as well and killed. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who are at risk of famine and dehydration and are at risk of infectious disease, spreadable disease. As also highlighted in South Africa's application, there are experts warning that more Palestinians will likely die and be killed as a result of starvation, as a result of dehydration, as a result of these preventable and spreading infectious diseases. So it's not about numbers, it's about the intent, it's about the policies and practices that are being carried out and implemented with the intent to destroy this group. And if you look at the composition of the ICJ and the judges that are there, they are usually very senior judges who have run the gamut of of the legal system in their own country, which essentially means that what we see on the bench are a lot of white men over 60 generally. Now also some women and there are of course some global south judges as well, but predominantly we see these people. If they were at some point to come to a ruling that this was genocide, this would be one of the first instances where it doesn't look like what maybe people expect. So it seems that they would have to take into account the deportations and the uh, fact that people got killed by indiscriminate bombardments, for example, as, as, a, as a matter of genocide. Do you think that the ICJ would be the kind of court that would take such a decision, that would stray from what they've done so far? Because in, in the Bosnian genocide case, they also ruled that the extensive complex of detention camps in Bosnia weren't genocide, but Srebrenica was, and you had the the ICTY ruling for that, which they leaned heavily on. And and in the Palestinian case, even if a ruling is many years off, it's not a great likelihood of another international court ruling on this. Do you think it stands a chance in that sense? It's hard to still have faith in the international legal system and the international legal order, especially as I have mentioned, it has failed the Palestinian people in seeking justice and accountability for decades. We're not talking about a few years or a few months. No, we're talking about decades. But at the same time, the ICJ has in the past given an advisory opinion that has said basically that the wall is in violation, it's illegal, and has kind of afforded some sort of not justice, but some sort of proper legal reasoning when it comes to Israel's action and conduct and practices in in the occupied Palestinian territory. And given that the ICJ is the principal judicial organ of the United Nations, it does have the required capacity to deliver a just and fair decision. But once again, given how the international system and the international community have over the years chosen to selectively apply international law and its mechanisms when it comes to the Palestinian people and the question of Palestine, I would personally continue to be reserved in my expectations and be cautious in my optimism about the ICJ's decision and ruling in this case. 
And it is yet to be seen whether it passes this probably last test for the international legal order, especially when it comes to Palestinians. And if it is able to carry out its proceedings and if it is allowed by the powerful states to carry out its proceedings without political interference, without bias. As someone who's working with international law for quite some time now, I would truly hope that it will be the case, that it will be able to carry out its proceedings as such without interference, without bias, and to rule and to provide the decision as necessary. And I have one final question. You talked at, at length that there has been years and years of reporting on the way the Palestinians are treated. And there has been a lot of reporting about what has happened since October 7th. What do you think the impact will be of Thursday when South Africa will have two hours to really lay out its case and there is going to be a lot of media attention, so it will be hard to escape? Does that mean anything? Does the fact that bringing this case also gives attention as to why and it, and it gives South Africa a chance to lay out its case, what do you think the impact of that would be? It's hard to predict, really, especially with how things are moving so fast, so rapidly, so unexpectedly, whether on the ground or in terms of reactions. It's really hard to predict what will be the impact and what will be the outcome. But I would like to hope that for those who haven't uh, been convinced by what they have been seeing for the past three months, a genocide being live streamed, mass atrocities being committed live streamed. We're seeing them on social media. We're seeing them in the media. And for those who haven't been convinced that this is the case and this is what they what these acts and conduct classify as under international law, maybe perhaps by listening to the argumentation of prominent lawyers, of professional lawyers, experts appointed by South Africa and their pleading, perhaps they would have a change of heart. And if anything, for the record and for the history, this will also stand as an important moment, as an important documentation. I don't want to say it, but yeah, for the archives, for whatever it matters in a hundred years, people will know that we haven't been exaggerating. When we go back to the ICJ itself, as we said before, the background needed here is that it only fully heard one other case based on the genocide convention, the Bosnia-Serbia case that we mentioned before. That is, in a way, the only thing we can look to for precedence because it's the only time they ruled. Can you give us a bit more on that, Steph? Because I... I don't know if everybody knows exactly what happened in that case and what was the basis for it. So let's start off with why the cases are similar. They are both uh, cases that invoke the Genocide Convention, and in this case, a Bosnia accused Serbia as the successor state to the former Yugoslavia of committing genocide and failing to prevent genocide being committed mostly by Bosnian Serbs, which got support from Serbia. So there already we have a bit of a difference because uh, in in this in the Bosnia Serbia case it's alleged that Serbia did it through others who are operating in Bosnia, while in the uh, Israel Gaza situation, of course, South Africa says it's Israel, its soldiers who are committing genocide and incitement to genocide and failing to prevent genocide. So it's more direct. Another way it's different is that the war in Bosnia has been litigated in other courts, namely the UN uh, court for the former Yugoslavia, 
the war crimes court, which already ruled that Srebrenica, for instance, was a genocide. And so uh, Bosnia came, you know, backed up to the hilt by these other international tribunal rulings that it was genocide and that there was genocidal intent. So there was a lot for the judges at the International Court of Justice to look at from this other jurisprudence. And that, of course, is something we don't have here, uh, which will matter for the eventual case, but ultimately will ma matter very little for the provisional measures, because the only thing that the judges have to rule on in the provisional measures hearing that we're going into is, is there a prima facie case? Is it plausible that some of the things that are being alleged are possibly happening? If yes, then the case will move forward and then they can decide on yes or no preliminary measures. And often the courts do something, a kind of placeholder situation where they, they don't do anything to make it worse. Uh, you'd already mentioned and gone through some of the ways that the Ukraine case against Russia was uh, different from this. But we do have yet another case under the Genocide Convention, which is also a a state that is apparently not so involved, Gambia, bringing a state that is accused of committing genocide, Myanmar, under this convention. So how is that similar and different as well, Steph? It's very similar to this case, indeed, because we have a case that ostensibly has nothing to do with the, with the killings going on, saying, but as a party to the Genocide Convention, it's my duty to uh, make sure that it doesn't happen anywhere. So when I see it happen somewhere, I can bring this case, uh, I can bring a state to this court. So that is the question of can a kind of uninvolved state bring a genocide suit? And that was resolved in a way in the Myanmar Gambia case, because there Gambia, a West African country, filed a suit against Myanmar for allegedly committing genocide against the Rohingya. And that was a kind of novel way of doing it. And the court that already went through provisional measures and also that first stage of a case before the ICJ where you can raise objections to the jurisdiction. And Myanmar had argued that the Gambia had no standing because it wasn't actually involved or didn't have any nationals involved in what was happening in Myanmar. And that was thrown out by the judges and the case was allowed to go forward. So it's kind of already settled that an outside state, so to speak, can invoke the Genocide Convention to prevent another signatory of the Genocide Convention of possibly committing genocide. So it's relevant in the sense that the big kind of hurdle for this case that, that we would have seen has already been litigated in another case not very long ago. So it's unlikely that the judges will change their minds so quickly that they will say yes in one case and no in this other case, just a few years apart. So I expect Honestly, that if you look at if they have uh, the standing to bring the case, I, I expect that, that the court will allow that. And so we're more likely to see uh, a final hearing on the merits than we were before they ruled on Gambia, Myanmar, if that makes sense. I mean, there's, there's so many complexities in this. And to help guide us through some of this, we also asked Juliet McIntyre, and she actually wrote a whole uh, intro for non-lawyers. So we asked her also some of the things she thought that people might need to know in order to understand some of the basics of this case. So we see a lot of cases at the ICJ, which often involve things like borders, for example, maritime borders or land borders between states. They want third party to settle the line in the sand, literally, and they will go to the court to resolve that kind of a dispute. 
But as the court has gone on, it's also seen a number of other types of cases dealing with a vast array of different international law issues. It's the only court that covers the full breadth of international law under its jurisdiction. And in terms of jurisdiction, this is one of the things that sometimes trips people up. Jurisdiction at the court is consensual. So that means that both parties, the applicant and the respondent, have to consent and agree to appear before the court. They can do this in a number of different ways, one of which is using a compromissory clause in a treaty. So a treaty, an agreement between states, it might say something like, if there's a dispute about this treaty, then states can take that dispute to the court. But without a mechanism like that, then you can't compel a state to appear before the court. Some commentators are suggesting that bringing a case like this is some kind of an abuse of the genocide convention. How would you respond to that? I think there's a couple of things going on here. One is that we've seen in recent years at the ICJ a number of interesting cases that are perhaps a little bit left to centre from what we're used to. So we've had the Amir case against Myanmar, which is related to genocide. That case was left of centre because, of course, the genocide against the Rohingya people in, in Myanmar does not involve the Gambia at all. So there were lots and lots of questions about whether you were allowed to do this, whether another state who's a party to the treaty was able to bring a case. court said, yes, the obligations under the Genocide Convention are ergo omnes partes, which means you owe them to all the other states' parties. So anyone has an interest, they can bring a case to the court to enforce the obligations under the Genocide Convention. So that's fine. So that one was a little bit, everyone was like, oh, interesting. We've resolved that. Then obviously you've got the Ukraine case, which is different again, because there what's interesting is that Ukraine isn't alleging that Russia has committed genocide. Rather, it's alleging that Russia has claimed genocide is occurring in Ukraine and used that as the justification for its invasion. So again, it's a different kind of case to that which we're used to seeing, which is uh, normally sort of an accusation of genocide being against the respondent state. So this is now the third case where people are going, oh, it's a little bit unusual. It resembles the Gambia-Myanmar case in that it's brought over on this partez. Obviously, South Africa is not personally, if you will, affected by the actions that are taking place in Gaza at the moment. But the court has now said, look, this is fine. This is a perfectly legitimate way to bring a case. We have no problem with it. So it's not actually particularly controversial at all. It's not really an abusive use of the Genocide Convention. In fact, in accordance with the court's jurisprudence, it's quite a standard use of the Genocide Convention. There's a claim that the respondent state is committing genocide. An upstate party is using its obligation under the Genocide Convention to prevent genocide and bringing that case. So it's actually not that controversial, really. It's just that it's come at a time when the courts had a number of these types of genocide cases uh, that have been a bit different. So I think people's antenna are a bit up, if you will. They're like, oh, it's another one. It's another one of these big cases. But really, when you break it down, it's a very standard claim. State A bringing a claim against State B for breaching their obligations under a multilateral treaty. Quite standard. So looking at that and looking at what happened with Gambia, Myanmar, do you expect emergency measures to go through and always at an ICJ case, the state uh, that a claim is brought against has first right of objection to uh, why the case is brought and that both passed in the Gambia 
case. Do you expect the the court to hold firm to its own jurisprudence? I think you've seen the same thing, but we uh, who follow a lot of war crimes uh, things and war crimes allegations have seen that everything seems to be different or treated differently, or at least very much more heightened with the Israel-Hamas conflict. Do you, as an ICJ observer, expect this to follow the Gambia-Myanmar example? Yeah, I, I do. Reason being that at this early stage in particular, the court uh, almost always follows its own procedural practices um, and its own procedural jurisprudence. It, it very rarely departs from it. On the merits of cases, yeah, you get a very wide array of different decisions, different justifications, and sometimes some reasoning which is a little bit, shall we say, cryptic, trying to avoid major political questions. But in terms of the the process at this stage, that is whether the courts have got jurisdiction, can it order provisional measures and those things, I think they're going to be actually quite standard. We're going to see the provisional measures hearing initially, which is the urgent, urgent hearing where South Africa is saying, look, the court needs to make an order immediately to, to, to stop what is happening because the notion of provisional measures is to protect the rights of the parties under the convention, you know, but not make the situation worse, basically. The order is don't make it any worse. And so what South Africa is saying is, look, Israel needs to, to cease attacking Gaza. It needs to allow for humanitarian aid. It needs to, to stop its military from committing any acts that might amount to genocide and take all of those various types of measures. So we're going to see an argument about that. Now, Israel's appearing and it's going to defend that provisional measures application. Its arguments, though, will probably be based on fairly technical sorts of claims, possibly related to the lack of dispute. That's always a popular one. So uh, alleging that there's no jurisdiction here and the whole thing should just go away. Those haven't been popular arguments with the court. They're going to make technical arguments about the test for provisional measures. And then, as you say, they may bring preliminary objections, which saying that the court doesn't have jurisdiction. They may not because we see a lot of these types of claims at the moment and they're not always very successful, especially in light of the decisions of the court in the Gambia case where they said there's no problem bringing a, a claim. You have standing, Berger omnes partes, not a problem. This is very similar it may just be a massive waste of time. Now, that might be Israel's legal strategy. It might decide that's what it wants to do, is waste everyone's time and prevent a decision on the merits from being heard. But it's very unlikely, I think, that the court's going to find that it doesn't have jurisdiction here, given what it's decided in the Gambia case. There would have to be evidence of, for example, again, like a lack of a dispute. But the South African application has done a really good job setting out very clearly all the time South Africa raised the um, potential genocide allegations the no verbal before bringing proceedings, they've ticked all of those procedural boxes where in previous cases the court has indicated mm, maybe this could be a problem for states. So South Africa has been very, very careful in the way that it has prepared itself to bring this case. So I can't see those arguments getting up either, but they may well be made regardless. It's going to follow a fairly similar procedural pattern. The real meat and the real question is going to be at the, at the merits stage when we get there, you know, whether the genocide has been committed uh, on the basis of the intent behind um, Israel's action, really. It's all, it's all, it's going to turn on that question at the end of the day, because we, we can see the acts that are taking place. It's, it's obvious what's happening, whether or not Israel intends to destroy in whole or in part the Palestinian population is going to be the real 
question for the court. Just heading back to the provisional measures implications, there's a lot of countries that are signed up to the Genocide Convention, not just South Africa and uh, Israel. If there are some provisional measures which say you've got to stop, does that have implications for other signatories to the Genocide Convention? Do they have to do something? I'm thinking specifically, do they have to stop supplying bombs to, to Israel? In terms of the provisional measures stage, that only binds the parties, so South Africa and Israel. But there is a rule under the Articles on State Responsibility, Article 16, which talks about aid or assistance in the commission of an internationally wrongful act. So where a state provides this assistance and does so knowing that the act that they're assisting is internationally wrongful, then they can be in trouble, basically. They may have themselves committed an internationally wrongful act, leaving them liable for various potential claims against them. In the Bosnian genocide case, the court actually talked about this a bit, and they said you need, in the context of genocide, for the assisting state to have an inkling. They don't have to be fully aware necessarily, but they need to be somewhat conscious of the fact that not only is something happening here, but that it's genocide. So rounding back to the provisional measures point, if you have a provisional measures order that says the rights claimed by South Africa are plausible, there is a risk of genocide occurring here, and um, and we're going to make orders to the effect that, for example, Israel needs to, to stop what it's doing uh, and take all steps to prevent genocide and so on, that's a real flag for other states that they're on track to potentially be aiding or assisting in the commission of a genocide, which itself is an internationally wrongful act. So while they're not directly affected in terms of the liability from the court, it has the potential flow-on effects. One final question I had for you. I, I can't imagine that you resisted reading through the whole South Africa application. So my question was, was there anything surprising in there? There, there was a couple of things. One is, as I said, the really excellent job that they've done in terms of meeting all of the potential complaints about jurisdiction and so on uh, ahead of time. Credit to the team who's worked on this. They really know their, their jurisprudence. They, they have absolutely addressed every single potential argument that could be raised. And then the second thing that's very interesting is that this is 84 pages long. This is more like a memorial. It is, it is detailed in the level of evidence that has been presented, especially in relation to this question of intent um, and statements that have been made. There, I mean, there's obviously a huge amount of evidence that's publicly available because a lot of this dispute is available online. There's there's a huge amount of media about it and there's been public statements from Israeli officials and all these kinds of things. But they have made sure not to simply approach the application in the way that a lot are, which is a very brief sort of eight to ten page document that lightly sketches out the, the contours of the dispute. They have gone all in with the evidence, all in with ticking every box, I think, in order to make sure that they have left no stone unturned, that there is nowhere for the opposing team to argue their way out of this application coming to fruition on the merits. And then the final thing that was interesting is actually the detail in the request for provisional measures. So, well, it's like three pages long. I'm not going to read it all out to you. But what's interesting is that whereas in the Ukraine case, you had a very broad statement, there were only three final orders that were made, stop the invasion, Ukraine and Russia, not to do anything that might aggravate the dispute 
and everyone to make sure that they follow their obligations under the Genocide Convention. What South Africa's done here is actually go into minute detail about things that they want Israel to be ordered to do. So they must make sure that Israel desists from and takes measures within its power to ensure that people are not forcefully displaced from their homes, deprived of adequate food and water, make sure that people aren't deprived of medical supplies and assistance and so on and so forth. It's a really, really detailed set of claims here. And again, I think it's to prevent there being wriggle room in terms of, you know, broad statements. And again, if there is a failure, for example, there is, of course, a request for the State of Israel to immediately suspend its military operations in and around Gaza. But if that doesn't happen, there's other much more specific requests. And again, if down the track, Israel was found to have not complied with those orders, those very specific orders, uh, then Israel can be you know, held accountable for its failure to comply with the binding provisional measures order. So there may be additional compensation ordered and so on down the track. So they've really set things up well, South Africa. And uh, and so I think it's going to be interesting to see just from this procedural point of view. Like, <laughs> I obviously love the, the, the procedure side of this and I think it's really fascinating, but at the same time, it's it feels a little off perhaps to be discussing it, saying, oh, this is great and interesting when there's there's such terrible things happening on the ground. But, you know, for, for lawyers down the track who who may be learning from what South Africa is doing here, I think it's a great case study and it will be very interesting to see the way that Israel responds to this um, because they've decided, as I said, to appear. They're not taking the Russia route of just not appearing at all and ignoring the whole thing. So I think down the track for, for lawyers and law students, this is going to be a really fascinating case study uh, in the way to run a run a case like this uh, at the court. Well, as always, um, this court, you can look at what they did before and sometimes they go the same way and sometimes they go a very different way and there are some rules, reg- regulations that popped up that haven't gotten into other cases before. But yeah, the way that I see the other cases that have gone, I think um, South Africa is very, very specific in the provisional measures that it wants. But the court also likes to point out with every provisional measures order that, that they're not bound to take over the same provisional measures and they usually make up their own. So I think looking at everything, I expect some kind of please don't do anything that potentially looks genocidal. Please refrain from anything that makes it worse. Will they really stop, say, the military action in Gaza? I find that quite unlikely. What do you think? I see a lot of arguments going around at the moment about um, whether they might pick and choose between some of the different things that South Africa is asking for. They might just focus on the humanitarian side. They might ask Israel to stick by their obligations under international humanitarian law. They might be less likely to say that the war should stop because of the context and because we don't have uh, Hamas as one of the participants in the proceedings. So that's all there. I just wanted to point out before we wrap up is that my analogy of the World Cup right at the top, I think, is really unfortunate in lots of ways because it does seem like we have all kinds of pile-on pressure from supporters of different sides, sort of cheering the judges on to do this or that or the other. And this is not how a court works. A court doesn't work with that kind of pressure. And it's, it's odd, isn't it, that people do regard it in those terms? 
It was an extraordinary. Somebody put on Twitter a kind of uh, uh, example letter, and with all the judges' email addresses that you could send this. Like this is super important, and I think you should really support. I think this was for the Palestinian causes, and I just thought, you know, this is very kind of staid, relaxed uh, court filled with seventy, sixty, eighty-year-old kind of judges who. Don't really handle technology great, and so I was just thinking, these poor judges, kind of boomer judges, have their mailbox suddenly explode with thousands and thousands of letters, and they—I don't think they. Well, they've had cases that were very passionately fought before. I mean, we've both seen the an India versus Pakistan case uh, where emotions ran very high, also with the journalists in the press room. More recently, Armenia Azerbaijan was another uh, kind of quite intense uh, media moment for the local media. But this has this kind of other dimension, and everybody is piling on. It's it's not just the people in the country, and everybody's looking at this, and everybody has an opinion about this. Con- everything about this conflict is supercharged in so many ways. I do think it will impress how everybody is looking at every kind of comma, every letter of what will come in that ruling. Um, so uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with. Agreed. And it does show how very important this court is. It is this sense that a lot of the mechanisms, that particularly on the Palestinian side, that they've tried to use all kinds of efforts at the United Nations. One of the reasons why Israel finds a lot of the ways that the United Nations operates so wrong is because so many bits of the United Nations uh, focus in on Palestine and on the human rights abuses that go go on in the occupied territories. So this bit of the UN, finally, the International Court of Justice becomes the focus. So I'll see you on the other side, Steph. I hope that you survive the next week uh, with all the pressure that goes on. I hope that that it becomes uh, an interesting time that you have there and an interesting ruling that comes out. I think definitely, but I think this is one of those... uh Confucius moments, you know, where where may you live in interesting times is both a blessing and a curse. That's definitely what's going on here. So uh, we live in interesting times in international law. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode has been recorded at home, but we'd like to give a shout out to our regular host, Humanity Hub in The Hague. Music is by Audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.